Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the second City Club of Idaho Falls program for 2008, right here in the Benyon Student Union Building here at University Place, the home of ISU and uh, U of I. And if you look across that parking lot there a bit, soon to be the home of the Center for Advanced Energy Studies. We're very proud of all that. <laughs> Absolutely. My name is Mark Young, and I bring you greetings from our board of directors. But back on that subject of K's, when Senator Crapo showed up today, and we're so glad to have him here, it's nice that he can see from this podium the land that he helped achieve for this facility and the universities to have this expansion happen here. And so this is a very fitting view for you for your presentation today, Mike. A um, few more points before we move on today. This is also a special day for the City Club because as our guest today, we do have the Idle Falls Chamber of Commerce here with us and uh, their leadership, Laurel Hall and Rob Childs. We appreciate your joining us today. Thank you very much. Please. In addition, as has been our tradition since our beginning, uh, Jerry Miller and the friends at KISU are recording this program for a future broadcast, uh, and we'll try to get that on uh, schedule so we know exactly when that's going to come about on us. But uh, next Monday night, there we go. You have it uh, directly from Jerry at 6 o'clock. So that's a nice feature, and we'll have it on our website, too, in archival manner. Um, we also always like to appreciate the Idaho Humanities Council for their continued support, and uh, they've been wonderful in this regard. Now, in addition, we have in uh, March, March 28th, we have Dr. Arthur Valis. He'll hold our podium here on March the 28th. He'll be speaking about the historic role of Idaho State University in our region, as well as looking forward to the additional educational opportunities Idaho State may be looking forward to. So please come and join us on March the 28th there as well. Now on your, your, I was about to say your desk, but on your tables, you'll have and you'll see the protocol for our questions, as is the tradition of the City Club. Uh, please feel free to write your questions, and they'll be picked up by Katie Anderson or myself or Lexi, and uh, they'll give those to Dave Adler, our moderator, and uh, make sure that uh, Senator Crapo gets those questions today. So please feel free to do so. Which brings us to today's program. To introduce our distinguished guest and moderate our discussion, I invite to the podium our own constitutional scholar, author, and professor of political science at Idaho State University, and definitely a future program of our city club, Dr. David Adler. Greetings, everyone, and let me also thank you for attending today. It's not always that that senators are willing to come home and face the constituents. It depends upon their standing. In this case, Senator Crapo is wildly popular in Idaho, and so there's no second-guessing an invitation from a prestigious group like the City Club of Idaho Falls to come back and meet constituents. As you all know, at the founding of our republic, the United States senators were selected not by individual voters, but by state legislatures. In 1913, however, with the passage of the 17th Amendment, that changed dramatically, and suddenly voters had the opportunity to select their representatives in the Senate. This represented a sea change in the development of American political democracy because suddenly 
It made U.S. senators very accountable to their constituents. And ever since then, U.S. senators have been very timely in answering their responsibilities to return to the state, to take questions, to hear concerns, and to express their views about the state of the nation. And so we're very pleased today to have Senator Crapo here to provide some information about the, de the developments in Washington, to offer his views on leading political issues, and of course to take your very interesting and we're sure troubling questions. Mike Crapo is no stranger to Idahoans, of course. He's been engaged in public service for many years. He has served previously in the Idaho State Senate for eight years, the last four years of which he served in the position of Senate Pro Tem. After that, he served three terms in the United States House of Representatives. And of course, now he's in his second term in the Senate. A lifelong Idahoan, he was born in Bonneville County. He was graduated from Idaho Falls High School, received his BA in political science from BYU, went on to graduate from Harvard Law, later came back and was a partner in a prestigious law firm here in Idaho Falls. In his capacity as a U.S. Senator, he is extra busy. He serves on several committees, including, of course, the Senate Budget Committee, he holds a post on the Senate Finance Committee. He's a member, moreover, of the Senate Agriculture and Nutrition and Forestry Committee. And of course, he's a member of the Senate uh, Banking, Transportation and Urban Renewal Committee. Among his many important subcommittee posts, he is ranking member of the Senate Subcommittee on Transportation, Housing and Community Development, which has oversight responsibility, by the way, for Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. And he's also a member of the Senate Subcommittee on Banking Institutions, or Financial Institutions, which of course has oversight responsibility for banks, credit unions, and other financial institutions in this country. Many of you know his wife, Susan, who is a, an excellent team member, and together uh, they have five children. Please welcome Senator Crapo. Well, thank you very much, David, for that introduction, and uh, thank you all for coming. Uh, it's, uh, it's a little bit of a I guess a little bit foreboding to stand before your friends in your hometown and, and to, to talk with them about issues on which usually they know much more about than you do. But I really look forward to this opportunity. Uh, before we get going, I wanted to congratulate Jerry Scheid and Carrie Getty, who got married this Saturday. <clears throat> and also to wish Ann Howell I understand she's recuperating very well and doing very well, so I appreciate that. You know, uh, I'm supposed to talk about, the, I think, the status of Congress or, or uh, something like that. I can't remember the exact topic, but when you think about that general subject matter, it's a target-rich environment. You know, I, I could talk about uh, a lot of different things from uh, immigration to our energy policy to the farm bill which we have before us now to the war in Iraq and, and the battle in Afghanistan as well, as well as our national security issues with regard to terrorism and homeland security. We could talk about... Uh, well, I, the list just goes on and on and on. And I hope that I get questions on all of those things during the question and answer period. But what I want to talk about is the economy 
and the budget, the United States fiscal policy and our the – excuse me, the circumstances that we face in our country on an economic level. And uh, then I'll I, – I truly do want to discuss everything from uh, the – the, the lab here in Idaho to immigration policy and everything else, and, and I do encourage your questions on that. But like I say, I sit on the Budget Committee, the Finance Committee, and the Banking Committee, and so I get pretty involved from about every perspective in Washington with regard to our economic policy, whether it be our, our uh, international economic policy or our domestic economic policy. And uh, frankly, I'm very worried. Uh, the President just submitted his budget for this year, which is the first time in the history of our nation that the budget of the United States of America presented by a President is over $3 trillion, $3.1 trillion to be exact. And many of you have heard me talk about the uh, – I'm going to talk about a little bit of the procedure as to how Congress works, and many of you have heard me before as I discuss that. I apologize uh, for those of you who have already heard it, but it's important to understand uh, where I want to head with the concerns that I want to raise to you to understand some of the procedural rules, rules under which we operate in Congress. As we put together our budget in Washington, the first step is the President submits a budget. The next step is that the House and the Senate each consider that budget through the Budget Committee. And when things work the way they're supposed to, the House and the Senate then adopt a budget for the Congress. They, they look at the President's recommendations. They almost, in fact, I think literally never accept what the President has submitted to them uh, word for word or line for line. But they are pretty much uh, in line in terms of the broad numbers. And there's a reason for that. And that is – well, I'll get into that in a second, but let me get on with my little – my procedural lesson here. As, they, as the Senate and the House move forward, as they try to adopt a budget, once the budget is adopted, they then are supposed to turn that matter over to the Appropriations Committee, and the Appropriations Committee divides the broad budget into 13 subcategories, which it has 13 subcommittees for. And those 13 subcommittees each get an allocation of the budget, which they are to spend on their subject matter area, their area of jurisdiction. And if they try to spend more than that, then there's a point of order that can be raised against their appropriations bill, and there has to be 60 votes instead of 51 in the Senate in order to pass that budget, in other words, to waive the budget and allow that committee to spend more. And in this Congress, and in pretty much every Congress that we've had for a decade and will probably have for decades into the future, uh, there haven't been 60 votes to do that. Uh, I hope that there will never be that kind of, of, of support. Uh, but when Congress can't adopt a budget, then there's no, there are, there's no point of order, and the Appropriations Committee literally moves forward without that point of order restraint, and we rely on the pressure of the votes on each bill to stop them from overspending. In the last couple of Congresses, we haven't been able to achieve a budget, and there's a question as to whether we'll be able to achieve one this year for reasons that I'm going to get into in just a minute. One more quick procedural lesson. In the House of Representatives, 50 percent plus one is 100 percent of the power. And what I mean by that is the majority in the House rules, and they rule literally with an iron fist. They do not let the minority have much of a say, if any at all in what the majority's policies, what their budget will be, what the rest of their agenda will be for the year. And they generally can pass it pretty rapidly. 
As a matter of fact, in the House, you may notice that when bills come to the floor of the House, they generally pass in less than one day, usually in a matter of hours, because the majority rules that the length of debate is restricted. Uh, and there are many other things that happen in this environment, and, and it literally is the place where the majority has its way. The Senate, as America has been learning in some painful ways uh, in the last decade or so, is the place where the minority is able to force the majority to come to the table to negotiate through the power of the filibuster. The minority can filibuster, anybody can filibuster, but it, it, it's the minority that does because it's not their agenda and it's not their bills and it's not their approach that is being brought forward to the floor. The minority can filibuster any, any matter before the Senate. And what that means to a particular bill is that any individual bill can be filibustered at about three or four points. The motion to bring the bill to the floor can be filibustered. The bill itself can be filibustered. Any amendment to the bill can be filibustered. And then when there is final, a final vote on the bill, which doesn't happen on all bills because some bills just have to be pulled back because they're being filibustered too much, the, the motion to appoint conferees and to go into conference with the House can be filibustered. And so the point that I'm trying to make here is that it's the Senate where, in essence, if you want to pass major legislation, you have to have 60 votes, not 50 or 51. And because of that, uh, the, the conflict over major policy decisions happens. It happens in the House, but it happens in the context of a debate where there's a vote and the minority loses. It happens in the Senate in the context of the minority being able to stop the majority's position from moving forward. Now, what does all that have to do with where we are on the budget? Let me back up a minute and, and just quickly describe to you the, the makeup of the federal budget. I'm going to talk in broad terms here. The United States government's budget can be roughly divided into two different kinds of spending what we call mandatory spending or discretionary spending. The mandatory spending is spending that previous Congresses and Presidents have passed and it's been signed into law and it's basically on autopilot. If Congress never met again, this spending is already law and it would go on. It also includes interest on the national debt, which by law we must pay. And so the mandatory spending is what, and these programs are, other than being called mandatory spending, they're also commonly referred to as entitlements. In other words, Congress has established entitlements that say that if people fit a certain category of circumstances, they are entitled to be paid money or to receive a benefit. Things that we often associate with that are Social Security, uh, Medicare and Medicaid, and the like. Actually, Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid are about 80 or 90 percent of the entitlement programs. Uh, add interest in the national debt together with these. And this part of the budget that is on autopilot represents roughly two-thirds of that $3 trillion that we're talking about. Two-thirds of the federal budget is on autopilot. Now, members of different political parties like to attack each other for the runaway budget that we have in Congress. Uh, and blame Republicans or Democrats, but whoever's in control deals with the fact that two-thirds of the budget's on autopilot. And unless there are 60 votes, this gets back to the lesson I was pointing out earlier, the procedures, unless there are 60 votes in Congress to change these entitlement programs in a significant way, they continue to operate. And as I said, there aren't 60 votes. The Republicans don't have 60 votes to change the entitlement programs the way they'd like to change them. 
And the Democrats don't have 60 votes to change the entitlement programs the way they'd like to change them. So the entitlement programs, with minor alterations that do successfully get put into place uh, because they are minor changes, uh, move forward driving our spending in this country in phenomenal ways. One last point about that part of the budget, the, dis the mandatory part of the budget. It grows because it was not it's not managed. It grows at whatever rate the, the uh, dynamics of the entitlement programs drive it. And as you know, with our baby boomers starting to retire and with the health care costs rising as they are now and the increased need for health care as our baby, baby boomers age, uh, the costs of the mandatory entitlement programs are significantly growing significantly faster than the economy is growing. Uh, if you just take some assumptions of, say, 25 to 3% growth in the economy, uh, the entitlement programs are growing at two, at least double that rate and often triple that rate. And again, it's out of control, and neither party, both parties can blame each other as much as they want, but neither party has the votes to change it right now. Then you move to the discretionary part of the budget. In the discretionary part of the budget, you can break it down into – that's the part we vote on every year. That's the 13 appropriations bills and what we actually vote on. It's one-third of the actual spending. And you can take that one-third and break it into two pieces, basically, and that is defense spending, which is about half of it, or one-sixth of the budget, and the other third is everything else. And if you then treat these two pieces of the budget in a separate – if you analyze each of these two budgets in a separate way, you see that – and as you might guess, the defense spending is growing as fast as – and in fact, in the last three or four years, faster than the entitlement programs because of the war in Iraq, the war in Afghanistan, the incredibly increased pressures for defense spending nationally anyway simply because of the, the general – concerns about the war on terror and the domestic homeland security piece. And by the way, homeland security, I'm not counting in the defense spending part. But the defense spending, whether one agrees with the war in Iraq or not, or agrees with the way we are approaching our defense policy in the country or not, I believe there would be very few in either political party who would not acknowledge that at this time our defense spending is very difficult to cut, although many of us would like to do so because it is consuming hundreds of billions of dollars that we could put into other uh, aspects of our budget or, frankly, if nothing else, paying down the national debt. Uh, however, uh, what I'm leading up to here is that there's really one-sixth of the budget. If, if you leave aside the entitlement programs, the interest on the national debt, and the defense spending, there's about one-sixth of the budget where Congress really has an opportunity in today's world climate to make a difference and to, to exercise some fiscal restraint. And in my opinion, Congress actually has exercised reasonable restraint. I'm not saying there's no waste, fraud, or abuse in that part of the budget. But that part of the budget has actually been controlled to the point where its growth rate over the last five or six or seven years has been less than the rate of the growth of the economy. If the, rest of the, if the other five-sixths of the budget had been managed like that part of the budget, we would have seen a reduction of our national debt because our economy would have been growing faster than our spending. And we'd have been able to use that differential to pay down the national debt, and we would have had a balanced budget. Now, <clears throat> why did I know I'm supposed to speak for only about 20 minutes, so I got about five minutes left before we throw it open to questions. Why did I say our, my, my concern is so great? With, th with this mounting debt, 
I said our budget this year was $3.1 trillion. Our debt this year is $9 trillion. That's how much overspending we've already engaged in. And the federal government cannot continue to carry this level of debt. With that picture in place, there's only one or two ways to solve it. One way to solve it is to cut spending. And as I've indicated to you, until we can get to a national consensus in this country about how to deal with entitlement programs to the point that we can get 60 votes to change those, then two-thirds of the budget is off limits. We, we cannot reach agreement on how to deal with it. And until we can get to a circumstance where we can reduce our defense spending dramatically, that one-sixth of the budget is going to be hard to a hard area for us to find the, the reductions necessary to make serious progress. And as I said, we've already pared down the rest of the spending to the point where it's been held at very low levels of growth and will continue to be. So a, a look at how to control spending brings us, in my opinion, to one conclusion, and this is one the one of the conclusions that I wanted to make. The American people, in my opinion, must come to recognize that we have to deal with the entitlement programs in our federal government or we will economically run into a cliff or run into a wall, however you want to describe it, go off the cliff or into a wall. Because we must be able to control that two-thirds of our budget in a way that gives us the ability to at least get a handle on the spending side of the equation. Then there's the tax side, and, and I'll conclude with this. I'm very concerned because we have huge battles in this country over what tax policy should be. I'm one of those that believes that the tax cuts that we passed in 2001 and 2003 were very significant in terms of stimulating and strengthening our economic performance, and that the thing that we need to do, above all, is remain economically competitive as a nation and have a strong, vibrant nation that has tax policy that facilitates the formulation of capital and that strengthens wages and creates opportunities rather than a tax structure that discourages these types of things and forces economic opportunities.